It's the most popular teaching on Christian television today. It's called the Word Faith Movement. But is it biblical? What do the Word Faith teachers believe? And why are so many people believing it? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zukerin. Pat Zukerin is an author, speaker, and Christian apologist who speaks all over the world presenting the good news of Jesus Christ. At a recent conference in Hawaii, Pat Zukerin asked Dr. Ron Rhodes to analyze the Word Faith Movement. Today, you'll hear part two of that presentation, and it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Some of you have heard of this recent book that Oprah Winfrey has promoted called The Secret. And The Secret talks about this new discovery of the law of attraction. Well, it's not new. It's been around for a very long time. And in fact, back in the 1800s, Phineas Quimby talked about the law of attraction, which says that if you have positive thoughts, you're going to have positive results in your life. If you have negative thoughts, you're going to bring about negative uh, circumstances in your life. That's the law of attraction. And so you can see how that's related to positive confession, this idea that you can speak forth your situation. If you want to have a, a, a big fat wallet, just speak to your wallet, words of wealth. That kind of an idea. Moreover, one of the things that can be positively confessed is your healing because physical healing is guaranteed in the atonement. They base this on a misunderstanding of Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. And the, the, the pivotal part of the verse is, by his wounds we are healed. Believers should never be sick. It's up to each individual believer to appropriate the guaranteed healing that's been made available. Some of these guys say that there's a warehouse in heaven with all kinds of limbs hanging from the, from the walls. There's, there's legs and arms and livers and various organs just waiting to be claimed by people on earth. What you need to do is positively confess your healing. And then those, those limbs, those healed limbs up in this warehouse will become yours. Yes, I, it's, it's what they teach. If the believer has sin or unbelief, then the available healing is prevented. I've heard some of them talk about how it can be prevented if, if, a, if a demon is in you. If the believer listens to the body, like bodily symptoms, instead of the spirit, which is supposed to rule over the body and the soul, healing can be prevented. Now, just think about this for a moment, okay? Let's say that um, your spouse has cancer, and she's dying, and she ends up dying. How would you feel as the spouse, feel knowing that you allegedly had the power to change this by positive confession? And let's say you even tried positive confession, and it didn't work. So you must assume that you did something wrong. How would you feel? I mean, this is the stuff that horror is made of. Guilt, shame, psychological problems that emerge from this theology are countless. Uh, let me just play a couple of, of, of clips on this to show you where they're coming from. Now remember, pain has come, disaster has come. Now for a while, you're going to have to stop and control and discipline yourself. And, and every time you're going to have to make the decision, I refuse to consider my body. I refuse to be moved by what I see and what I feel. In other words, don't, don't make reason the big thing. Make the spirit the center of your belief system. To say that if we have a drug available or a medical treatment available, we ought to resort to that just won't line up with the Word of God. You just can't make that line up with the Word of God. When you were born again, the Word was made flesh in you. And you became flesh of His flesh, bone of His bone. Don't tell me you have Jesus. You are everything He was and everything He is and ever shall be. And the new man doesn't look back, it has no past. It doesn't look ahead, it's got no future. It says, I am as he is. 
That's what it said. Jesus said, go in my name, go in my stead. Don't say, I have, say, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. That's why you'll never, ever, ever have to say, I'm sick. How can you be sick if you're the new creation? Now listen to this. How can you glorify God in your body when it doesn't function right? How can you glorify God? How can He get glory when your body doesn't even work? And the Bible says your body is the temple. He lives, the Holy Spirit lives in your body. What makes you think the Holy Ghost wants to live inside of a body where he can't see out through the windows and he can't hear with the ears? What makes you think the Holy Spirit wants to live inside of a physical body where the limbs and the organs and the cells do not function right? You don't want to live in a house with a leaky roof. You don't want to live in a house where the toilets are running over on the floor. You don't want to live in a, a run-down, broken-down house where the electricity doesn't work and the wires are hanging out of the wall. You get it fixed because you say this house can't function rightly unless everything is functioning as it was designed. The function. How do you think then that God can get the glory out of your body when your body is the temple where God lives and he wants, and he wants, and what makes you think he wants to live in the temple where he can't see out of the eyes and he can't walk with the feet and he can't move with the hands because the only hands that he has in the earth realm are the hands that are in the body. The only eyes that he has that are in the earth realm are the eyes that are in the body. If he can't see out of them, then God's going to be limited. How can you glorify God? How can you glorify God in your body when it doesn't function right? How can you glorify God? How can he get glory when your body doesn't even work? And the Bible says your body is the temple. He lives, the Holy Spirit lives in your body. What makes you think the Holy Ghost wants to live inside of a body where he can't see out through the windows and he can't hear with the ears? Okay, now, however much coffee he's drinking, he needs to cut it in half, at least. There's one more I want to play you because uh, he's speaking mockingly towards those who disagree with him. He says, well, if you want to be sick, that's fine. We can still get along. Just listen to these words. You know, some people get upset when you teach them. Well, I disagree with that. Hey, go ahead and die then. The Bible says, according to your faith, be it unto you. Now, if I believe that, and I stay here and die when I get ready to die and leave, hey, that's on me. If you don't believe that, and you just want to wait and let Satan kill you off at 35 or 44 or 52, fine. Let's don't fall out about it. Let's just stay in loving Jesus, and you die, and I'll just keep right on living. <laughs> Amen. You don't have to get healed. You can die of cancer. You can die of a stroke. You can have TB. It's all right. Let's just stay in love in Jesus. You be sick and I'll be well. Why argue about it? If you don't believe it, then stay sick. Well, there you have it. Not only that, not only can you have health and wealth, uh, but God wants you to have prosperity. And there's a number of uh, verses they go to. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says that uh, Jesus became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And they take that as financial. John 16 24 says, Ask and you will receive. And uh, your, your joy will be complete. In Joshua 1.8 we read, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So the, the Bible is really a book full of laws that you can apply that will lead to prosperity. Third John 2, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. Or as some translations put it, and that you may prosper in all things. And then the hundredfold return. Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, is taken to believe that uh, if you like send in a dollar to TBN, uh, you'll get $100 back. Or if you give what's equivalent to one house to TBN, you'll receive an equivalent of wealth worth 100 of those houses. You see, so the, the, the hundredfold return is said to be a very good deal financially. And so these are the kind of verses that they go to to support the idea that, uh, that, that God wants you to be uh, not just healthy, but wealthy as well. Uh, listen to Robert Tilton on all of this. I'm sure some of you have seen him. On That's the Bible. That's the Word of God. There is prosperity. Not only is worrying a sin, but being poor is a sin. When God promises prosperity. 
All right, and another. The whole point is I'm trying to get you to see, to get you out of this malaise of thinking that Jesus and the disciples were poor, and then relating that to you, thinking that you as a child of God have to follow Jesus. The Bible says that he has left us an example that we should follow his steps. That's the reason why I drive a Rolls Royce. I'm following Jesus' steps. All right, one more. <laughs> that spirit of poverty is broken when you get to that phone and say, put me down as one that's going to give $5,000. Listen, folks. You, you smell a rat here? Okay, they're telling you that, you know, if you send in a dollar to them, God's going to give you $100 back. How come they're not giving their money away, expecting a hundredfold return for their money? Why are they getting on the TV saying, give me your money, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me? You see, uh, uh, it's unfortunate that many people don't smell a rat there, but there's something wrong with this picture. Now, the important part, answering the claims of word faith teachers. What are some things that we can mark down in terms of answering where these people are coming from? First of all, word faith leaders are not beyond criticism. But very clearly, Scripture supports the idea of public confrontation. False doctrine that is publicly proclaimed should be publicly confronted. Paul publicly confronted Peter when his actions compromised the liberty of the gospel, Galatians 2. Paul publicly dealt with Hymenaeus and Alexander regarding their blasphemy. He publicly dealt with Alexander the coppersmith for harmful activities. And so there's everything right and nothing wrong in publicly confronting Benny Hinn, Hagen, Copeland, and some of these other guys for their errors. Because their errors are being disseminated on a global basis, deceiving millions of people. Number two, reason does play a central role. Reason does play a central role. God created us as rational creatures in his image. Amen? God urges, come now, let us reason together. Isaiah 1.18. Jesus confounded his own critics using logic. Mark 11.29. And he set an example for us. Jesus commanded, you shall love the Lord with all your mind. Matthew 22, the Apostle Paul continually reasoned with the Jews and the Gentiles. One good example is Acts 17, verse 2. Peter commanded, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Overseers are urged to be able to refute those who contradict, which requires use of the laws of logic. One more thing, you cannot argue against reason, as word faithers try to do, without using reason. A little problem there, philosophically. Three, God is not a physical being. God is not a physical being. This is primarily aimed at Kenneth Copeland. Not Kenneth Hagen, but Kenneth Copeland. John 4.24 obviously tells us that God is by nature spirit. Luke 24.39 tells us that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Conclusion, since God is spirit, he does not have flesh and bones. Uh, you know, words like um, uh, Isaiah 40, verse 12, which speaks of the hand span, uh, that's an anthropomorphism. It's speaking of God in human terms. It's figurative language. Scripture elsewhere talks about God as a rock, our foundation. Uh, we are said to be under his wings. This doesn't mean that God is a big stone with feathers coming out of it. This is a figurative language. And Copeland just misses it. Furthermore, God is not a man, Hosea 11.9, and has no form, Deuteronomy 4.12. Uh, now, what I'm illustrating to you is a very important principle, and that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. If you've interpreted Scripture in such a way that it's directly contradicted by very clear passages found elsewhere in the Bible, your interpretation is wrong. And Copeland violates this all over the place, as do other word faith teachers. Number four, God is not a faith being. God is not a faith being. In fact, I could spend the rest of the session just talking about this one. The very idea that God has to exercise faith, to me, has dire implications. 
Just think about it. It implies that God is somehow bound by the constraints of time and does not see or know the future until it has happened to him. He must have hope. He must have faith to bring things about that he uh, doesn't have an assurance on. It it implies that God seeks to bring certain things about by faith, uh, like you and I do. Let's be clear. There is a huge difference between our omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God and a finite human being. God gets what he wants because he is God, not because he speaks words of faith. God gets what he wants simply by willing it. He doesn't need to verbalize anything in order to bring something about. Huge difference between the two. Number five, man was not created as a duplicate of God. The image of God does not refer to man becoming God or or becoming divine or a little God. Human beings share imperfectly and finitely in such attributes as life and personality and truth, rationality, wisdom, love, holiness, and justice. We're finite. We're kind of like the moon in reflecting the greater light of the sun. But we don't ontologically become deity. Scripture says there is one God, and you and I are not it. The Bible continually rejects this idea of polytheism. I bring this up for one reason. I love the Pentateuch because of the continual stress on the incomparability of God, the incomparability of Yahweh. But if you read the Pentateuch, you're going to see a common phrase come up all the time. There is none like Yahweh in all the earth. And you'll also find the rhetorical question, who is like Yahweh in all the earth? And that question was continually asked in the context of the polytheistic gods that pagan nations believed in. Uh, You might remember what uh, Pharaoh said when Moses said, let my people go. The Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And then about ten times after that, when God sent one plague after another, Yahweh says, that you may know that I am Yahweh and that there is no one like me in all the earth. You see, Pharaoh asked a question. Yahweh answered big time. And of course, the Pharaoh was considered a god, wasn't he? According to the Egyptians. So this idea of human gods falls and collapses like a, like a house of cards when you measure it against Scripture. Furthermore, man's ignorance of his deity proves he's not deity. I mean, can you imagine just reading a Word Faith book by Kenneth Copeland one day and you come across this stuff about you are a god and you go, oh, cool, I'm a god. You know, the very fact that you come to realize you're a god proves that you're not a god. The attributes of God and humans are completely different. In fact, I've written about this in some of my books. God is all-knowing, but humans are limited. God is all-powerful, but human beings are weak. God is everywhere present, but humans are limited to one place at a time. God is holy, but even man's attempted righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. God is eternal. Man is born at a point in time. God is truth. Man is full of deceit. God is justice. Man is lawless. God is love. Man is brimming with vices. The point being, if man is a God, one could never tell it by his attributes. I tell you what, folks, reading the scriptures against the teachings of the word faith movement, it is an astonishing thing to see the wide chasm that exists between the two. And I've got to tell you that the word faith hermeneutics is every bit as bad as anything, and is in some cases even worse than that produced by Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults. Number six, at the fall, man did not take on the nature of Satan. That is something that the word faith movement came up with. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's no mention of the nature of Satan here. And let's also be clear that Christ could not take on the nature of Satan, because Christ as God is immutable. He cannot change into Satan and then back into God His nature as God is unchanging. I like the way Norm Geisler puts it on this verse. Jesus was always without sin, actually, but he was made to be sin for us judicially. 
While Jesus never committed a sin personally, he was made to be sin for us substitutionally. You might even remember the Old Testament uh, goat, you know, they would lay hands on the animal and the sins of the nation would be transferred to it. Did that goat really become sinful? No. But substitutionally, it was made to be sinful. Christ, the Lamb of God, was the same way. Well, what about Isaiah 53, verse 9? For those who don't know Hebrew, it might sound like they've got a good argument because the word death is plural. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, plural, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Well, you know what? In the Hebrew language, the plural is often used to intensify the meaning. Now, Hebrew grammarians would know that, but these word faith folks don't. The Hebrew word for death is a plural of intensity, indicating that the one physical death that Christ suffered was particularly intense in terms of violence. It was a death among deaths. It was an intense death. That's what the verse is saying. It's not saying that there were two deaths, both a physical death and a spiritual death. So yet again, we find misinterpretations on the part of the word faith movement. Jesus attained our redemption at the cross, not in hell. Uh, these are among my favorite verses. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Revelation 1.5 speaks of Jesus Christ, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And let us not forget what Jesus himself said at the cross. It is finished. He wasn't talking about his death. He was talking about the plan of salvation that was instituted before the foundation of the world. Christ had now had completed what he came to do. It is finished. John 19.30 Further, Christians are not the ongoing incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not a prototype. The word to describe Jesus, in Jesus being the only begotten Son of God, is the Greek word monogenes, which means one of a kind, unique. No one else like him. Jesus is uniquely the, the, the divine Messiah. And by the way, Benny Hinn, saying that you and I as Christians are Mashiach, as if we are the Messiah, Benny, go to seminary. Uh, let me tell you, friends, the, the Old Testament has virtually hundreds of prophecies that, that refer to the coming of a single divine Messiah. Every one of them was fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is uniquely and only the Messiah. There are none other. There is never a situation in which a human being, such as you and I, become the Messiah. Nor is it true that if you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you become an incarnation of God. It is not true that if you become a part of the body of Christ, that some kind of ontological change occurs where you become God. You see, this is like a symbol. The body of Christ is a symbol or metaphor that talks about the unity of Christians who are united to Jesus Christ spiritually. But there's no ontological change. You do not become God. You as a human will always be finite. You do not become an infinite God as God himself is. And then number nine, Christians do not have the God kind of faith. Mark eleven twenty two, have faith in God. You see, the word faith for you is that God is a subjective genitive. God is a sub subject who himself has faith. So you should translate it, have the faith of God. The correct view is that God is an objective genitive. God is the object of faith. It should be translated, have faith in God. That is to say, you humans should place your faith 
in God alone. Big difference between the two, and a simple misunderstanding of Greek grammar gets you into all kinds of trouble. And then number 10, positive confession is not a biblical concept. You know, I really have a heart for people who watch these shows on TBN and they mail in their money thinking they're going to get miracle money back with a hundredfold return, and then they go bankrupt. I know of old people who have sent in their life savings thinking they were going to get a hundredfold return, and they lose everything. I think about people who have contacted TBN, and these are people who have remained unhealed of their cancer, even though they're doing precisely what the people on TBN say that they should do. And the end result is that they are depressed, disillusioned, full of guilt, with their apparent lack of skill in positive confession. I think this is horrendous. Some of you have heard about Larry Parker, who wrote a book called We Let Our Son Die. You know, uh, Larry Parker came in under the influence of a faith teacher. And this faith teacher said, it's a negative confession for you to give insulin to your diabetic son. You see, so you shouldn't do that. You should have a positive confession in God. Well, Larry Parker was very sincere. He loved his boy with a passion. He wanted the best for his boy. And so, based upon this word faith teacher, who cited various verses that we've looked at today, Larry Parker decided to withhold insulin. And over the next number of days, his son went into a diabetic shock, and then his son died. But they didn't let up. You see, the faith teacher continued to say that it gets darkest before the light shines. You see, we must, must maintain our faith. Continue to make a positive confession. God is going to raise your son from the dead. So there the body was in the living room, and they're waiting for a resurrection, and it did not happen. And Larry Parker went to jail. Think about it right now. Larry Parker, looking back on his life and how he had been deceived by these teachings, and how he let his boy die. The decision that he made resulted in his own boy dying. That is unbelievable pain. And this just shows you the kind of carnage that can result when you believe wrongly. That's one of the reasons why we have conferences like this, because we care about people, and we don't want people to suffer this kind of carnage. Number 11, healing is not guaranteed in the atonement. It's not guaranteed in the atonement. I would say that ultimate healing is, that is our resurrection. One day we're going to get a brand new body that's not going to have any more heart disease, uh, no more wrinkles on the face, no more, no more uh, gray hairs falling out. And best of all, you can apparently still eat. Uh, Jesus ate food in his resurrection body four times. So that's something to look forward to, that good heavenly cooking. Anyway, our bodies today are perishable and weak, according to Paul. Our outer man is decaying. Uh, our resurrection bodies will represent the end of all such suffering. I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul could not heal Timothy's stomach problem, nor could he heal Trophimus at Miletus or Epaphroditus. Paul spoke of a bodily illness that he had. He certainly wasn't sinning, but he still had a bodily illness. He also suffered a thorn in the flesh, which God allowed him to retain. Certainly Job suffered within the will of God. So my point to you is that there are multiple examples that contradict this idea that healing is guaranteed in the atonement. Uh, in terms of Isaiah 53, this is a healing that is not physical, but spiritual. The important part of the verse says, he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. We are healed from the sin problem. That's the context. Jesus died to take care of human sin. And number 12, the prosperity gospel is an unbiblical gospel. It is true that in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, her, uh, for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Become rich spiritually. That's the context. Spiritual prosperity. It is true that in John 16, 24, Jesus said, ask and you will receive. But you know, there are conditions. Keep reading scripture. Jesus said, you must remain in me. And my words must remain in you. 1 John 3, 22 says, you must obey his commands or you don't get what you ask for. 1 John 5, 14 says, you must ask according to his will. You see, these are all qualifying verses that help us to take scripture in its proper context. It is true that in Joshua 1, 8, 
It says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. But this is military in its context. Joshua was going to conquer the land. The conquest of the land would be successful. It wasn't talking about money or finances. And in 3 John 2, this is just a common greeting among the ancient Jews. I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. That's just the way they talk. Nothing financial going on there. And as for the hundredfold return, nothing financial there either, folks. This is talking about the fact that if you become a Christian and your mom and daddy stand against you, maybe your brothers and sisters and friends stand against you because you trust in Jesus, don't worry. Because you've got a hundredfold return of other believers just like you all over the world who have trusted in Christ. They are your new family. That's your hundredfold return. Nothing financial there whatsoever. And then finally, the Bible provides many key insights on the desire for health and wealth. Uh, God does not condemn riches per se, but a love of riches is condemned. 1 Timothy 6, 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. In Luke 12, 15, we're exhorted, guard against all kinds of greed. And then in Matthew 6, Jesus says to build up treasure, not on earth, but in heaven. These are times for discernment. There are multitudes being deceived by word faith theology out there. Many hinnas among the worst of them. What's being propagated on the TBN network is deceiving people globally. We appreciate you joining us for Evidence and Answers of Pat Zucrin, and it's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening.